Welcome back to the EIS Navigator, the podcast about all things EIS and venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. In a moment, we'll be joined by today's guest, who is Dr. Ruben Wilcock from Blackfinch. Before that, I'd like to give a plug to a very worthwhile project that they have launched called Isolation Intern. This is a recruitment website, in essence, which allows startups to connect with interns and researchers. You can find it at isolationintern.com, and I hope you find it helpful. Without any further ado, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the EIS Navigator. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Ruben Wilcock, who is Ventures Director at Blackfinch. Ruben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's a real pleasure to be part of the podcast series. I want to start with asking you how you got into sort of the ventures industry. And I think you've got a slightly more interesting story than some. So I'd love to hear it. Well, no, it is quite unusual. I think I've had a, a quite unusual background. It's kind of spanned through academia, startups, startup acceleration, and then landing in, in venture capital. So I did a PhD in electronics and chip design. I was involved in kind of university commercialization, helping them figure out whether to spin out patent opportunities. Um, and then I kind of started my own tech startups. I've been involved in four, exited one quite successfully. And then I founded a startup accelerator called Future Worlds. And, and that, that was to help very early stage companies, kind of quite young founders to launch, to you know, grow, to be successful. And I think we helped about 50, maybe 60 of those, mostly in the tech space over four years. And then that kind of, I, w- I would say naturally, although I don't think it was necessarily planned, kind of led to, to me then entering the kind of venture capital scene, which isn't so very different. It's the same sort of thing, but you've got the capital to, to help them with as well. And you came into Blackfinch in an also a slightly unusual way in that Blackfinch have been involved in EIS and related areas for some time. But in terms of the venture space, this was a relatively new new enterprise for them. And you were effectively brought in to set that up. So how how yeah, how was that? that that's, that's that's right. Yeah, I think that's probably quite accurate. So Blackfinch is a, a, an investment specialist in the mainly in the tax efficient space. Although we've just launched Blackfinch Asset Management as well, uh, which is not non tax advantaged, and and part of the underlying um, investments are, are early stage tech companies. And when I joined in February two thousand and nineteen, uh, that product, the first fund, the EIS Portfolios Fund, had just kind of been started. So no investments have been made yet. Uh, and I joined the company and I kind of took over running the process and setting up the processes to make these sort of high quality investments. So so that's kind of where we are today. So we've got the EIS Ventures Portfolios uh, product and then we've just launched uh, the Blackfinch Spring Venture Capital Trust, which is which we're quite excited about, which is a kind of a slightly later stage uh, opportunity. Yeah, and, that, and, and that's interesting because there haven't been many brand new VCTs started from scratch recently. So be interested to see how that goes. It's a, I can tell you it's a steep learning curve. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's hard to launch a, launch a new VCT. And I'm actually really proud that we managed to do it. And typically, you know, history will show that, that if you manage to launch, then it grows, you know, every single year. So I think the future is bright for, for that opportunity. Yeah, certainly VCT capital money is sticky for um, at least five years. So Five years, that, that's right. That helps. What I wanted to dig into, Ruben, was your your experiences of this, because unlike most people I speak to, you have very recent experience of setting up an investment process from scratch. You kind of had a blank slate and you came in and said, to a certain degree, you, you could do what you like. 
And I think it might be interesting to find out how you approached that and what challenges you found in doing that. So perhaps we could dig at that. You know, when you when you present with a blank slate, what do you think? No, I mean it is unusual, and but I, I think it's a great opportunity for someone like me. So so what I've done, I guess, throughout my career is I've set up a lot of things, whether it's you know startups or the accelerator I set up. I really relish that 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 part of looking at something new and trying to sort of set it up. So what do you do when you've got a blank slate in a venture capital firm? Um, well, well, I think the first thing you do is you look at how other people do it. You know, you look around you, and I had quite a lot of experience of that through working on the other side of the table and seeing seeing how they did it. And I think what that lets you do, if you're a kind of naturally inquisitive and maybe slightly innovative person, a bit like me, is it, it lets you start from first principles and say, well, look, what are you actually trying to do here? You're trying to find great opportunities. You're trying to assess them. And then you're trying to complete those deals, look after those companies. You're trying to do all of that as efficiently as possible. And so, yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed being able to look at it from first principles. And we've definitely set up the process quite differently from uh, from other other funds for that reason. And I think it's a real, I guess it's a real opportunity to be able to do that, to be in a position to do that uh, as well. And I'm sure we'll talk about more of that later on. Yeah, because I, I think having spoken to you before, I know that um, one advantage of, being, of developing something now rather than maybe inheriting a 10 or 15 year old process is that you've been able to bring technology in in a way that perhaps is harder for people who are modifying an existing process so we'll maybe we'll maybe dig into that as you go on. But in terms of for framing the conversation, I might maybe just work through things a little bit. You you mentioned about getting good investment ideas. And I know that if I set up a fund and put up a website, I could get dozens of opportunities very easily. I know that most of them would be pretty terrible as well. So how did you approach trying to get high quality investment opportunities um when yeah no, it's, it's, it's a great question and it, it doesn't happen overnight uh, and i'd actually challenge you i think if you set up a, a website then uh, even setting up a website and doing a bit of marketing you know it doesn't happen overnight so i think there's a few areas really so so we look at areas like obvious, obvious places like accelerators incubators innovation hubs uh, that's one area to look at the danger there is that they tend to be a bit earlier stage unless it's things like a sort of scale-up accelerator or something like that. So what stage we, did you, are you looking at? Yeah, so great great question. So um, in the EIS fund, we look at companies with pre-money from sort of kind of one to eight million product market fit, evidence of product market fit, normally post-revenue. In the VCT, we look at companies that are typically kind of six to 30 million pre-money, uh, always kind of revenue of more than a million a year. So that's the kind of the kind of state. So it's so a nice you're spread, kind actually. of almost Series A source. Of- Seed in the EIS and Series A in the VCT is probably the way you'd look at it. So from the kind of accelerators, you get these these very early stage companies, maybe a bit, bit too early for, for us possibly. But then the team itself, you know, we've got our own networks that we bought. So, you know, I had, had a bunch of networks in the, in, in the kind of university space from before. And we've got, uh, you know, Nick, we've got someone else joining the team that's been in another, another fund. And then we have our networks of, of business development managers. And then as you make more investments, then you get more, you know, networks through the founders that you go through. So there's all of that kind of normal stuff, I guess, is what I would call it. And that grows over time. Uh, but one of the things we've been doing a lot, which is very much a kind of like a, a typical kind of Reuben thing, which is, and you touched on it earlier about the technology, because we invest in these tech companies when we get them to do pitches, we fully expect that they are, you know, running a data-driven approach throughout their business. 
And I think that it's exactly appropriate that as a tech investor, we should do the exact same thing, you know, that, that we should be doing, you know, really driven by a, a data-driven approach. And so what we've done a lot of at Blackfinch is that we've we've employed loads of tech, tech tools, you know, whether it's CRM platforms or, you know, recording all our pitches or whatever it might be. But we do, we do use a lot of research platforms as well. And, and I guess the comment I'd make is that all the companies are out there and all the information on those companies is also out there. I mean, whether you just look at basics like Companies House or you look at all of the kind of high growth lists, everything like that. And if you can get all that data, then actually you could be far more proactive in searching for companies, in, in spotting the right companies at the right time that may not even know you yet, but you can go to them and say, hey, you know, you look like a really interesting company. Are you, are you raising? And then you start to really build, you know, high quality deal flow like that. So I think we have led a very, you know, proactively data-driven approach in addition to all the usual stuff. And I think that's that's how you build, you know, the high quality pipeline, as you asked. Yeah. So, so, so in terms of your approach, you kind of, is it sort of data first and then the judgment gets sort of layered on top of that? Is that kind of how you approach it? Yeah. So we would use the that kind of approach I mentioned to fill the pipeline. And the way that we we run things, again, is unusual. And it's, as I say, it's because we've had that opportunity to, to lay this process from scratch. And that is that we run, a, we run a kind of pipeline team, a deal team, a portfolio team. And so the pipeline team get all of these deals coming in, you know, every day, literally every day, lots of deals come in. And they, they're kind of evaluating those deals on a very clinical basis under very specific headings. Uh, they're using video calls. You know, even before COVID, we were using video calls, recorded video calls. The more senior team, we don't get exposed to the face-to-face stage with the founders at that stage. And this is all about trying to remove bias, which we'll talk about more probably. Um, and, and so it's all about trying to create a very sort of structured, systematic process to assess these leads, to bring them to the rest of the team in a very kind of systematic clinical fashion and then move to the sort of more group-based pitch sessions and, and bring them forwards. How strict do you apply the data things? Because I think the, the challenge in any triage process is to try and take the universal opportunity down to something manageable at the same time, making sure you pick up at least most or, you know, I mean, I think all's perhaps too much to expect but you want to get most of the good opportunities. So how do you, how strict do you want to be about, okay, there's this thing that's, you know, it might, might be the next Facebook book, but maybe the odds are not in his favor or something. And how, how do you trade that off? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of take all of these little cues, all these little signals, I kind of think of them as, and we bring them all together. And it's in that whole piece that we make that sort of decision. So we wouldn't invest in a company where purely the numbers look right, but the team clearly wasn't right. You know, and we just knew the team wasn't right. You know, they didn't get on. It just, they couldn't communicate the vision, you know, or we wouldn't invest in a company where the numbers kind of look right, but actually the market was shrinking. So there's many different areas to the, to the overall puzzle. Uh, the data is, is a big piece. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I think I'm always keen to make that as big as possible because it's based in kind of facts and entrepreneurs by their very nature, they are kind of, incredibly optimistic and it's very difficult to to sort of get to the truth and the facts and the, and the reality of the situation we have lots of tricks around that to, to do it so it is one piece of the puzzle and there's lots of different pieces and and our experience and our kind of it, it sort of 
template match and it goes on in our heads around spotting these sort of good opportunities and the little signals about what makes a good opportunity, what doesn't, comes into it in a big way as well. So you know, one thing I think we spoke about before was the challenge about introducers. I, I think there's a lot of people with a lot of interests in this space and in some cases, the pies are quite small. I mean, my team will tell you, I get quite frustrated about this piece. And and look, I'll be quite clear, this, there are some kind of introducer mechanisms and some, you know, so PwC has got some really good programs and, and they genuinely do add a lot of value. I've seen that uh, firsthand. But I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, will come to you saying they've got these great deals. Do you want to look at them? And, oh, we don't charge you anything. And obviously, they're charging the company. They're not upfront about the amount they're charging. That obviously comes out of our investment. Let's not beat around the bush. And then they'll argue that oh, it's 5%, but we, we put loads of value in during the process. And when you actually start doing the deal, it's quite clear they're not really putting any value in. So, you know, for me, I do wish that that part of the industry could be more transparent. You know, I feel like introduced should be should have to sort of say when they send a VC, you know, or an investment sort of firm an email, these are my fees, this is how it works, you know, just to be really upfront, because some of them are quite, you know, it's a little bit, um, a little bit questionable out there sometimes, I think. So it is an area with which I try and sort of incentivize my team not to need to use. So we never actively go to any introducers. We get loads of people, the more well-known we're becoming, coming to us. And we make sure we mark every deal that would genuinely have fallen into that as an introduction very carefully. So we, we take that into account. The other thing about introducers, you've got to realize is, you know, they're getting a percentage of, of the investment typically. You know, they are incentivized to A, overvalue the company, raise more than they need to, tell you it's amazing. So you basically can't really trust much of what they say. And it's just not a good relationship to get into, if you know what I mean, from the starting point. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine a circumstance where you get a, a good consultant who can perhaps help a company hone its pitch and sort of say, well, we know a bit of the market. Maybe this is a realistic valuation. And there are places where it, there is value to be added, I think. But uh, whether people actually do that or how many people are actually doing that is perhaps questionable. No, I would agree. So, I mean, I want to be clear there. Clearly, there, there are some people that are doing this well. You know, there are some people that are very tangibly adding value and the amount that they charge is reasonable and they're upfront about it. And it can lead to some really great, you know, some good deals. But I think what I'm talking about is the slightly more Wild West end of, you know, people who are just kind of throwing any old deal at you, saying it's the best deal they've ever seen, not telling you about their fees, and then, you know, trying to sort of take money out of the whole process. And as you say, you know, it's a small pie at these early stages, 5% is actually quite a lot of an investment and it doesn't doesn't feel quite right to me. So you talked about biases. What biases do you see as being the big risk in part of your investment process and how have you tried to avoid them in in setting up the process specifically? Yeah, so I quite enjoy talking about this because I think it comes back to what you said earlier about how, you know, I've been in a position where I can build a process from scratch. And I think what I, I guess I recognized is that there's a sort of traditional model of, of venture capital firms where people like me, you know, senior members in, in the firm will go and have a lot of coffees, you know, with a lot of founders. And it's very easy to do that in London in particular. And you go and have a coffee with a founder. And I was just conscious, having sort of seen this firsthand, that it's very easy to slip into creating a sort of a chemistry and an emotional 
like almost like a getting on with someone very well and, and there's a relationship that builds there and it's very easy i think it's totally human nature that if you get on with someone well they're a great salesperson you believe in them and you can kind of you can push that all the way through the process quite easily without realizing that you have experienced a bias there that's come in that's crept in because your own personality so what we do that's different as i said earlier is we have a, a pipeline team who deal with all of the inputs so you know all of the deal flow goes into that team they look under standard headings they fill out this sort of the information under standard headings having had calls they're the ones that suffer if i can use that word the kind of bias factor uh, because they are meeting the founders face to face and you'll inevitably hear them say oh you know it seems like a really good guy a really good girl but but the nice thing is, is that we will we'll go through that loop. Maybe they'll have three, four hours of calls, you know, with feedback. We have a daily update on the deal flow at Brackfinch every day from the more senior members. And the more senior members will only meet them once we've generated that very clinical foundational level of information. And we'll have a very long pitch and we'll all be in that meeting. And that's the first time that people like me will meet these founders face to face. And I mean, I think that we've we've actually found that that is a very solid process uh, it, it's re, it removes bias at the more kind of decision-making seniority level in in the, in the team. It's created a really good foundation of sensible kind of you know data-based uh, clinical-based decision-making, which I think is I think is a great thing. You mentioned there about the risks of sitting in London, and you are based in Gloucester, which I think probably makes you the only uh, manager in Gloucester. Would that be right? It probably does. Yeah, it is, uh, it is unusual, and and I was amazed. You know, when I when I first heard about Blackfinch and and sort of discovered it was in Gloucester, I was surprised. And it, it really is a little kind of a little a little diamond, I think. Blackfinch is it's an amazing company, brilliantly talented CEO. And so, why is it great being in Gloucester? Well, genuinely. Would it be easier in London? Would it be easier to have those coffees, but we don't do that? You know, that's not the process that we have anyway. Um, I think it does encourage you to just look London-centric. I think that we see a lot better value deals from the regions, so that's all around the UK. That's a common theme I hear from many investors outside London is that the valuations difference between the north and south, or in your case, the southwest, is Definitely. far from trivial. It is. And you do get these bubbles. So, you know, like fintech in London, for example, you know, the valuations are incredibly high and it just, you know, it just doesn't seem to make sense. But then we'll find a great investment opportunity that like we did recently, you know, up in Leicester or something. And it will be really sensible valuation. Great company, great team. You know, maybe the founder worked on another startup in London before anyway. So it's not like this is a this is a solid opportunity, uh, great investment sort of potential. Uh, we like doing those as well. So we've invested in Scotland, we've invested in Leicester, in Oxford, in Bristol, and we've invested in London, but we look everywhere. It, it's hard to filter out London out. I think you know statistics show about half of the deals in the country go through London or the southeast, depending on how you define it. So if you're excluding that, then you're actually removing a, a huge pile of potential deals. Yeah, so I think the, the way we, we probably put it is that we overtly look outside of London. Uh, we obviously look at London too, but we make a really concerted effort to make sure we're looking at the whole country. And that's, by the way, what that that data-driven approach that I described earlier on the deal flow side uh, does. Because the data-driven approach, we don't put a filter in there saying where you are geographically. We are just looking for great companies. You know, it's really nice because there's no bias geographically. You just wherever they are is where they are. Do you find that with the valuation differential, you get perhaps a few more? outside London coming through relatively or or do you not see a bias in that? 
uh, in terms of the investments you make, uh, we make, do you mean? Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the company, well, depending on whatever stage, actually. Um, yeah, so the sort of the general pipeline. So I, I think we have become known for, you know, investing outside London. So I think you do, there's definitely a group of VC firms who, who really only look in London and someone that's looking for investment up in Scotland or somewhere in the regions probably wouldn't go to them because they know that they don't normally invest outside of London. So I think it has, we have become known for investing outside of London. I think we also, as a sort of side tangent, I think we've become known of being quite unusual in having made a couple of hardware investments because lots of VC firms are a bit allergic to hardware. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of know why, you know, it is difficult, but luckily, you know, that's where my background is. So we're, we're fairly good at assessing them. Yeah, I think there's one or two people who, oh, they're almost specialists. Um, in yeah. That they've got a bias in terms of looking towards that and they clearly feel more comfortable with that. Which is interesting because you know, it, it's, it's definitely a different area from software. Um, and theoretically, if you get it right, the barriers to entry should actually be higher. They would be higher. It's a very interesting area of hardware. I think that you create a greater defensive moat around you if you do it right, as you're saying, the barriers to entry go up because it is it is difficult. And you can potentially stick out more. You, know, you can look quite attractive. Um, the, the dangers are that obviously it takes long to get there because software is so easy to scale when you're talking about scaling production, you know, you've got to fly over to China, sit in a factory, uh, get all the test kits set up and running, you know, you've got to fix the initial, it's a, it's a very different process. They nearly always have uh, boot bootload new firmware onto these, these pieces of hardware. So you can sort of update the sort of program in a way, but clearly not as easily as you can completely change the entire software on a cloud-based web platform. So there, there are, there are pros and cons. And I think it's just nice that in our portfolio, we've got a, a kind of a mix so we've got a couple of hard one hardware ones uh, in there so coming back to setting up a process we've spoken a bit about getting your pipeline right and the data sort of driven aspect once you've actually got something where you've sort of decided you're going to invest you know or you're interested in investing what sort of diligence process have you looked to set up at and then particularly you know does that differ because you could set up from scratch yeah, I think that there's a lot of stuff that, that everyone does. And we do we do that, of course. So the financial due diligence, you know, doing the sort of the credit checks, doing the management team filling in the questionnaires and looking at their board minutes, their financial record. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff we do. We're quite efficient. We have a, a data room and we have a table and they there's all these questions in the table and then they have to reference documents they uh, they, they upload to the data room. So there's all the usual kind of stuff that, that I would say we do as just like every other uh, VC does. There's a couple of areas that we, we, we do that I'd say probably have been because we've kind of looked at it from scratch. And one of those is on the tech side, uh, I've always been a bit surprised at how, you know, all of this financial DD is done on these investments, you know, and I think it's because they use, you know, often use your lawyer firm to do that and it's what they offer. And then not a huge amount is done on the, on the tech DD front. So what we do in every company, because we're, we're pretty much tech, you know, fund both of them. But what we do in nearly every company is we have a network of, of these experts. A lot of them are from my background in the kind of university sector. So these, these are often, you know, world experts. And we'll put them into the company with me for a day. And we'll go through absolutely everything. So we'll go, you know, all the way from the kind of architecture, if it's a software product, all the way down to the kind of the security, how they onboard new team members, down to the sort of the code level, 
what machine learning do they really have? What AI do they really have compared to what they talk about? If it's hardware, you know, we'll go into the design and supply chain, everything. We look at everything. It takes a while. It's very intense, but we walk away kind of knowing what we get into. Uh, and it's not about trying to trip them up. It's just about knowing what we're getting into and obviously if there's any red flags. So that yeah. level of tech DD really lifting the hood and seeing what's underneath. I, I think I've discovered that that's unusually robust uh, compared to, to, to some of our competitors. And then another thing that we do is, you know, we are, well, we have this EIS fund, we have this DCP fund. And so we're pinning our, you know, our investments on them being qualifying for EIS VCT. And, and another area that was new to me when I, when I joined Blackfinch, but it's been fascinating to learn about is EIS qualification and advanced assurance. So typically a company can apply for advanced assurance. It's very easy to do. They could fill the form in wrong. They could supply the wrong information and they'll get a letter. Frankly, you cannot rely on just an advanced assurance letter from HMRC and invest on that basis. You've really got to do your own DD on it. And so we really use the, what is considered to be the gold standard best sort of Philip Air is the firm EIS uh, tax specialist in the country to, to assess the EIS qualification or the VCT qualification status of, of every investment we make. And that's been fascinating because you, they bring things to your attention that you just wouldn't have realized if you took the advanced assurance form at face value. I think, I think the rules have been, um, obviously they're in flux, which probably doesn't help. Well, not, they're not in flux now, but I think people's understanding of them is in flux as we're sort of un- getting a better understanding of what the new risk to capital process actually really means. And, you know, there's, while there's always some that fit that very naturally, there's always going to be a gray area. And um, so, yes. The age test is a classic one. So, you know, you'll, you'll look on company's house, company's been set up within the seven years, great. But then you've got to dig a bit further because the chances are it might have come from another company. There might have been even a, you know, a, a non-limited company, you know, sole, sole trader or something that was doing some activity and the IP was put into it. So you've really got to trade. HMRC doesn't care uh, about the entity. It just cares about where that IP, you know, where the product came from. So you've got to trace it right back. And often you find that um, founders don't really appreciate that. And so they filled in the form quite innocently, you know, thinking that it's just the start of their company. But the reality, or, or another classic thing is that they pivoted. So they were doing one thing and then they said, you know what, we're going to now make a SaaS product and they fill in the form and there's this very confusing term. It says something like date of first commercial sale. And because the whole form is about this new investment for this new part of their business, they assume they mean first commercial sale relating to this new thing they're doing in their business. And the reality is, is that that very specifically means the first commercial sale in the business, even if it was selling cupcakes, you know, on a, in a corner store. And so that's a very classic mistake that is made. And then you get an advanced insurance form. You issue, if you, if you don't do what we do, which is DD, is you might issue your EIS you know, one and then you'll get your EIS twos and issue your EIS threes, but they're not really based on accurate information. And that's a problem. So we're recording this in early June, 2020, for those of you listening long time in the future. And at the moment we're in lockdown because of this COVID pandemic, which at the moment we're starting to see some of this released um, and hopefully that will carry on. But I think it might be interesting to sort of say, you set up an investment process, we've got this crisis that's come along and affected everything. 
How has that impacted your investment process? Clearly it has, right? It's impacted everyone's investment process, I think. So uh, interesting story here is, so we were, as we do as a tax efficient fund at the EIS fund, is we were gearing up to do a bunch of investments before tax year end. We get a lot of inflows before tax year end. And so we were actually doing seven. We were doing three new investments and four follow-ons. And as we were moving into this sort of process in, in March, you know, COVID was sort of like coming over, spreading to the UK and started it. And we just did, and it was all growing week on week on week. And, <laughs> and it was literally every week, it was like, oh, you know, we need to look at this even more carefully now and even more carefully now. And by the time we, we started going to the investment committee to get a sign off, we were really focusing on the coronavirus and the impact of, of this on the investment. So we really looked at, at three areas. We looked at the, the chance of failure it, within the kind of coronavirus affected period, if you like the COVID affected period. We look at the impact on next round valuation and we look at the, the, the ultimate return. And so if we go kind of backwards, in terms of the ultimate return, in many cases, it didn't necessarily impact our long-term expectations of return. It might take longer to get there, but it wasn't, you know, we kind of, we, it wasn't a dramatic impact. If you look at the chance of failure, you know, in the short term during this lockdown period, then we, we mitigated that by working with the companies to you know, model a bunch of different scenarios, particularly, for example, with zero revenue, where what would you do? Realistically, could you run the company with zero revenue for a period of time until this is kind of passed over? So all of those, uh, those companies we invested in had to do that and a bunch of other investment scenarios. So, so that was kind of taken care of. But the, the one I'd say which is probably most likely to be an impact is you're going to see a lot of startup companies, early stage tech companies, raising at the beginning of next year because what's everyone's saying now is they're saying right we're going to get through this period with like a small bridge fund from existing investors and then we're going to do the proper round beginning of next year so that's going to be a big thing that happens and i think that you know the past 12 months obviously wouldn't have been too kind on their revenues everyone's suffering and so we probably will see some you know some down rounds and some impacts on valuation so but then if you look at the long term Obviously, that's that's a that's an intermediate point in the whole journey, and it's really the the final kind of exit uh, valuation and return that we, that we care about. So, what we did practically for each of those seven opportunities is we we wrote a kind of COVID write up for every one of them, you know, to to really look at all of those different factors, uh, highlight all of the cost reduction measures that they would take in uh, into account should uh, runway be a problem. I think the valuation question is an interesting one. I think putting aside the the short term revenue impact, and clearly there's going to be there's winners as well as losers in this environment. Maybe depending on where you're investing, it'll be interesting to see the impact of the changes in capital supply. I mean, certainly EIS clearly had a weaker period towards the end of the tax year than it usually would, and we. Or this is usually a quiet period, but I, I suspect it probably hasn't started very quickly for anybody. So there's going to be less capital in EIS at the very least for, for, for the short term. And I think there was a feeling around certainly EIS managers that valuations in some places had got a bit toppy and perhaps needed to come down. So maybe we will see that now. I think we will. Yeah, I think we will. So I think we're we're definitely seeing a sort of a difference, I guess, in terms of the opportunities that are popping up and the parameters around those opportunities. So I wouldn't say the number has reduced. If anything, it might have increased because people are having to do, do more bridge rounds because they haven't done as well as they thought. You, but, mean, you mean the but, amount, number of the amount being raised? Or? 
Uh, it's the, the, the quantity of, of opportunities in the pipeline. So the number of deals we're seeing come through, the opportunities. And so there's lots of them, but yeah, you're right. So valuation is taking a big reality check, which I quite like because <laughs> some of those, those little areas of bubbles are you know, needed to be redressed, I think. So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. People are a bit worried about investing. You know, a lot of VCs, I think, are probably focusing on their own portfolios, you know, keeping some powder dry, follow-ons. Those that are investing are having to very sort of carefully you know, manage the risk of the uncertainty that's presented because nobody knows today really what's going to happen. So the sort of ways that we're looking at that is things like valuation reduction to address that risk, but also things like tranching. So rather than putting in all of it in one go at the beginning, because it all looks very healthy and it's, you know, why, why distract the founders with having to raise more? You can always kind of split that into two, put an amount in and then against certain milestones or a certain multiple, you can have the second tranche. And that's just a good way of protecting our investors in money and making sure that we don't, you know, uh, we don't make sort of a bit of a mistake there. So th there's a few different sort of ways we're looking at things now, I'd say, as a result. I'd like to move on to a sort of standard questions. So we'll sort of throw these out and we'll get uh, your thoughts, which ho hopefully people find interesting. What was the most recent investment you made and why did you make it? So, yeah, we, we, we did we did seven, four follow-ons and three, and three new ones at the same time, but I'm going to pick one of them, obviously, and a new one. And so the company is called Spotless Water. And it's a really fascinating company because it's it's – you wouldn't think of it as a tech company. And if, it, if the deck fell on your lap, you'd think this is, this is kind of odd. This is an odd investment. But so let, let me tell you what it's all about. So there are, you know, absolutely tons, thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe of window cleaners all around the country, all around the world. And nearly all of them these days use those long poles. If you've seen them, they're kind of the boom. And, and you've probably, I mean, I, I have, because I'm a, an engineer at heart. I've seen them clean the windows and the, and the brush kind of squirts out these two little jets of water uh, and that's how they rinse it at the end. And I've often thought to myself, you know, how on earth doesn't that leave a, a long kind of like mark, a, a long sort of residue on the window? Because certainly when I try and clean my windows, there's always <laughs> spots all over it. The answer is, and I had never realized this before we met this company, is that they use highly filtered water. So they use filtered water that has really zero total dissolvable solids. So it's okay. pure, pure water. And so unbeknownst to probably you or me, they have these little stations, many of them, in their garages where they're kind of basically filtering and creating this water and, and they fill up the van and they go off and they do their stuff. Who knew window cleaning was a tech process? Who knew? Who knew it was? Exactly. Spotless Water totally figured this out. And they were like, this is madness, right? Because these are all very inefficient, expensive ways for individuals to generate the stuff that is absolutely critical to their job. So they have created these shipping container sized dispense you know, uh, units, which a bit like a petrol station, you can just drive up to, you can lift the nozzle, dispense at high speed, you know, as much water as you want. It's zero TDS, so it's literally pure filtered water, um, exactly what they want. You can then just pay with your credit card or you can have a key fob in the account and you just touch it on the thing and it's done and you can drive off. And they've got these stations all around the country. And so they came along and we thought, this is unusual. You know, this is a really, really different one for us. But at the end of the day, you know, amazing sort of proper hardware technology, the filtering system, what they do inside those containers. They've got a payment system in there and it's a really decent, well-proven payment system, front end, back end, dashboards, you know, account management, everything. You know, it is genuinely a tech company. So it was very exciting because it's completely unique. They're really the only big 
you know, company like this that, that offers this pure water all around the country, they're growing very quickly and, and they have surprisingly been very unaffected by uh, by COVID. It's, it's fascinating because everyone's at home looking at their windows, thinking these need a good clean. Window cleaners, they're acting alone and it's perfectly allowed that they can still go about their job and there's very little chance of any danger there. And so they've, I think just a few days ago, they they dispensed amongst their network the highest ever daily literage of pure filtered water so they're doing really well given the weather they probably need to drink some too <laughs> they probably do in the classic venture capital trio of market product and management which is the most important and why the earliest days the company the more important the team is and and the reason why is because you know you can change the product very easily you can you know you can pivot the product in fact that this often happens but if you don't have the right team, it's very difficult to, to really shake up the team and change the team. So you've got to get the team right. So the management is, is, is probably number one in the types of areas we look at. But obviously, we wouldn't make an investment into a market that wasn't big and growing. You know, we, that would just be a black and white for us. We just wouldn't do it. I think in terms of, you know, the products, that the more uh, later stage the company gets, the more, you know, that product has to be, great fit so the product market fit is one of the key things we look at and in our vct we're really looking for opportunities where the the company that the management team really understand uh, the mechanisms for growth around that product so it's kind of a bit late at that stage to totally change the product so i've classically not really answered your question the (laughs) answer is i think the answer is team the early stage of the company the more important team is is what i would amazing how people try to not be put on the spot for that um (laughs) Tell us about a time something went wrong and what you learned from it. Yeah, so and I, and I think it, it was an interesting question I looked at it because you often can't totally categorize things as, things as wrong and right, I think. That's the first aspect. So you're learning all the time when you're doing this job. Something recent that, that, that happened, very recent that happened. So we did a follow-on investment into a company that we first invested in last year called uh, Oro. And it's, it's a really good, it's a personal sort of fitness app. And, you know, it was, it was going crazy during the, the lockdown period because nobody could get to the gyms and this brilliant app that uh, was audio based. It's a bit like a personal trainer in your ear. You know, you go out for a run, you're on a gym machine and, you know, there'll be a trainer in your ear uh, through the app t- talking to you and it's pre-recorded content telling you what to do uh, and recording your progress and working with your wearables and everything. And so they were really taking off because all the gyms were shut and they were saying, you know, what can we do to engage all of our gym members and people at home wanting to do exercise? So we put a follow-on investment into that one just before taxi rent, you know, in uh, in sort of end of March. And what's been interesting is even since then, we've seen this kind of journey of, of how it's been shaped rapidly because of the lockdown. So they've done well, right? So they did they did get some loads of great partnerships with gym networks. But what they've realized is that that actually the the use case within the home is, is actually quite different to the use case that they're tuned for, which is going outside, doing exercise outside running, uh, or being in a gym. Uh, so what everyone wants to do at home is they want to watch Jim, Joe Wicks on the TV. My wife and my children do it every day. And you know it's a big TV video experience and they don't offer that. So they offer the audio experience, which is perfect when you're out running, you're in a gym where it's not really practical to have you know, a screen in front of you. They, they've done well, but we, we kind of got that a bit wrong. But what's, what I think is really interesting is that is how when you get these challenges, the best startups, they they always kind of come out the other end with improvement. And what they've realized 
is that they now have this great opportunity where these huge gym networks, and these gym networks are huge, some of these global gym networks, they've realized that with or without COVID, they want to have a digital platform where people can really monitor their performance, you know, their progress and their gyms, that they can communicate with them, upsell things. And so all those realizing now that maybe they should move, you know, maybe a bit away from the kind of B2C direct link to the end user and act more as a kind of almost white label platform for the gym networks. And that's something that's really good actually that's come out of uh, come out of the whole situation. So I think we probably got it wrong because we thought, uh, you know, it was going to just prove that their model was perfect and it was brilliant. And the reality is, is that it's forced it into uh, what could be a very good pivot. What would you change about the industry? One thing. I think what I would do is I would really like to see a way that we could kind of democratize the access to deal flow. And it, this might not necessarily uh, end up well for, for Blackfinch because I think we're really good at finding deal flow. But I do sort of feel like that just so many people are trying to access the same deals in a million different ways. And that whole system to me naturally seems very inefficient. And I think I'd be really interested to see what happened if, you know, it was just so much easier to see every deal opportunity on the table and be able to weigh up, you know, all the pros and cons of those opportunities in a very kind of, a very kind of like standardized way across it. Because I think it would change the whole way that founders go and look for, for investment. So I think democratizing the access to, to deal flow would be a really interesting, interesting thing to do. Yeah, I mean... I think one or two people have made the observation in the past that for an industry that is focused around technology, venture capital is a very light on technology itself. Um, it is. You're absolutely right. And that's what we're trying to change. But I mean, you could argue that in a way, crowd equity crowdfunding has democratized the access to deal flow, but it's done it in a way that, that really focuses only on certain types of deals, the types of deals which you know people can, you know, they have popular appeal, I guess. Uh, and I think that's introduced its own sort of challenges because I think, you know, often the kind of crowdfunding rounds that happen often get quite overvalued as well. And that becomes a bit of a problem and things like that. Yes, I have got somebody in mind I want to get on the podcast later who's kind of an expert in that area. Oh, well, that would be fascinating to hear. Oh, yes. So book, TV, film, something. What, what do you like? Give us, a, give us some of this people to listen or read. For, for books... I'm going to give you two because you haven't said one. So I'm going to push, push the boundaries this time. Two, two books. So How to Win Friends and Influence People has been one of my longstanding favorites because I think it's just absolutely fascinating, classic, uh, you know, human psychology written in the 1930s, yet totally relevant today. So I always push our founders to read that. The one that we sent out at Christmas, we sent a little, a little kind of care package out to our founders, some chocolate and things like that, and, and, and a book, was the hard thing about hard things. Uh, and I think that's, that's one that, more of it, isn't it? Yeah, that you know, founders need to read that because it's tough, and you have to make tough decisions. And and that book really helps you do that. In terms of TV and film, I don't have loads of time to to watch TV, but I would say that um, I did very much enjoy watching the kind of American sort of series of Silicon Valley because when they, I don't know if you've watched it, but when they I made that, it's on my list. So you should, because when they made that, you see. They, they brought in kind of real sector experts. So there's, there's so much in there that's totally relevant and genuine and accurate to the venture capital kind of super hype, you know, um, industry in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. It, it is a real good laugh if you're in the industry. 
Okay, I'll look forward to that. And finally, I mean, I guess it's not very long since, you, in some ways, since you're Blackfinch. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you'd started a Blackfinch? Yeah, well, it's not very long, but I can tell you, it's been a, it's, it's, it feels like a ten years, not one. So, what I would say is, I think when I first joined, I thought, I thought about this. And I thought, well, when I first joined the first day. I remember leaving work on time and coming back home and thinking, this is awesome. You know, this is great. This is going to be a brilliant work-life balance. You know, I finally cracked it. Uh, no, no more of this kind of 80-hour-a-week startup, you know, nonsense that I used to do. Um, but the reality is actually selling our ventures at Blackfinch has been a bit like uh, launching a startup in a way. Because, I mean, a lot of it's very similar. You're putting a team together. You're creating a you know, product in a way, you know. So the reality is, is it has been huge amounts of work and I think maybe it would have been, I don't think I would have changed my mind, but I think it would have been interesting to know that right at the start. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Ruben. If anyone would like to know any more about what you're doing, where should they find you? So just go head off to blackfinch.com. All the information is there on all of the different products that, that we offer. Uh, hopefully we'll be, see you soon in the flesh this time. Thanks. Thanks very much, Brian. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Ruben is a very thoughtful person, as well as being a genuinely nice guy. If you want any more information, you can see the show notes as usual at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like the podcast, then please give us a review with lots and lots of stars on iTunes. If you want to give other feedback or just get further information, you can contact us at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks' time.